0: Well, anyway, um, if you look at the outline, you sang a song that mentioned, Lord, the journey is long and I need your strength. Do you remember singing that? The journey is long and I need your strength. I want to ask you to think about this week that so many Christians will take for granted. That's why we have a pulpit. Oh, thank you. I'll give that back to you. (laughs) I'll try it. (laughs) Anyway, you sang a song that said, for the journey is long and I need your strength. And I'd like you to think about this week that so many Christians will take for granted as a journey. And it's a threefold journey. The first part is today. It's the journey to Jerusalem and it's a spontaneous celebration and we're going to look at that today when we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, a passage with which you're all very familiar. The second part of the journey really begins Thursday night, um, and it's called A Journey to Judgment. And that's a sacrilegious conspiracy. And I was so glad to hear Pastor announce that you're going to be worshiping on Friday night. And let me say this because as a visitor, I can say it, and if I offend you, I'm really not gonna have to deal with it. (laughs) No, I, I mean that. I am troubled by the number of Christian churches that will be closed on Friday. And I am troubled by the number of Christians that do not recognize that Friday is the highest holy day in the Christian calendar. Not Resurrection Sunday, but Good Friday. The Friday on which the battle was won, the price was paid, and his blood ran red or as you sang, his love ran red for us. That's the highest of all holy days. Resurrection Sunday simply proves that he was who he said he was and was capable of doing all that he said he would do. You know, if, if one of my friends died and the viewing was Friday night, and if I were truly a friend, I would be there. I wouldn't care what it would take for me to get there, but I would be there. And this is the God-man, God's son, my savior who died, and I wanna be with his people on the Friday called good to commemorate his love for me in that death. And I wanna challenge you that no matter what you're doing on Friday night, nothing can compare to the importance of gathering with believers and letting the world know that he died on that cross for us, and it's Friday, and as the old black preacher said, Sunday's coming. And that's the journey journey to joy. And that's simply the scriptural confirmation. So today you start the journey with me. It's the journey to Jerusalem. And as I said, it's a spontaneous celebration. During the week, I challenge you to read the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the end. Read the passion readings. Take time to read them. And allow yourself to get caught up in what he suffered because he loved you. And as you read, ask God to give you the gift of tears Because if we can't weep at the cross, there's something radically wrong with us. And so Friday will be the journey to judgment. A judgment that do us that he took upon himself. And that's a journey you'll make yourself this week. Or I'll make it with Rose. Many of you have the opportunity to make it with your spouse and your children. But next Sunday, you'll be with Pastor Sean, and he'll take you through the journey to joy. And that is scriptural confirmation, and it is all joy. But believe it or not, the first two legs of the journey are not joyful. We tend to think that the first is. I want to show today that I don't think it's as joyful as we thought. And so if you take a look at the outline that I gave you, I just want to read what I've written so that you know where I'm going. The triumphal entry, such as the traditional designation of the palm processional, which accompanied the master as he turns his face to Jerusalem one last time, Jesus entered the holy city surrounded by a sea of people who went all out for him, unashamedly and unreservedly. In this parade of palms were many who had been confronted by his wisdom, comforted by his words, challenged by his life, and changed by his love. Their lips shouted his praise, their eyes filled with tears, their hearts overflowed with gratitude, and their minds raced with anticipation. These were joined by others who had only heard the unbelievable accounts of his almost unspeakable deeds as they passed from one to the next. Water turned to wine. The nobleman's son healed by his word, and that from a distance. The paralytic made whole. The demonized liberated. The feeding on the mountainside. Were there really thousands walking on the Sea of Galilee during a storm? And all that talk about the man born blind who could suddenly see perfectly after his encounter with the Nazarene and now he was coming to Jerusalem. It was unreal. What followed for most was an enthusiastic and extemporaneous experience in worship and witness. But not for all, there were then as there are today, those who seemed to just stand by. Perhaps they felt chided by his teaching, convicted by his tenderness, confounded by his persons, or even censured by his presence. For whatever reason, they were unable or unwilling to enter in. Yet 21 centuries later, this entry of the word and Flesh into the holy city remains the most celebrated procession of all time. And I wanna encourage you to joyfully and prayerfully join him in that triumphal entry. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you again for loving us as you do. Thank you for songs that reminded us of how great your love We can't comprehend truly how you could love us. God, if we're really honest, we have to admit in just the privacy of our own hearts that we could be so unlovable. And yet you found something altogether lovely in us. And for that, you were willing to give your son. Spirit of God, I pray that you would take our hearts and our minds captive. I pray that you would speak to us, help us to make this journey Help us to see your love. Help us to walk with him not just today, waving palms and shouting hosannas. Help us to be there Thursday night when he's taken prisoner, Friday when they nail him to the cross. And help us to pause there. It's so easy to race on to the day of resurrection. But help us to know the sorrow of just for those few days that his followers knew. And then when this family meets again with pastor next week, may the joy be so exhilarating as we realize that he lives and he chooses to live within us. God, please that work that in our hearts and we'll thank you in Jesus name, amen. Most of us are very familiar with the narrative. Dr. Luke wrote and said, and after Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem and it came about that when he approached Bethpage in Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, Go into the city opposite you, in which as you enter, you will find a colt tied in which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying the colt? thus shall you speak The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as Jesus had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their garments upon the colt and then placed Jesus on it. And as he was going, they spread their garments in the road. And as he now approached the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the the Pharisees in the multitude chided him, saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, that even if these were to become silent, the very stones would cry out. And that's called the triumphal entry. You know, somehow I think that deserves a different name, after I studied it anew this past week and saw just a different aspect of it. But as you look at it, and if you look at the outline, there's some things that this passage tells us. And first of all, his presentation, that particular procession was foretold. It wasn't just here. Look with me at the text again in Luke chapter 19. Just follow closely in the first few verses. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. It came about when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you why are you untying it, thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away went and found it just as he had, been t- as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, in the second part of the verse, it says, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even the colt, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so 500 years before this particular procession, it had been predicted that the king would enter the holy city and that he would be there mounted on a donkey. And for that particular reason, Jesus chose a donkey. In Matthew chapter 24, verses uh, 4 and 5, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, it says that the reason he did this was to fulfill the prophecy which had been spoken, and then it goes on to quote, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation. And so 500 years later, he chooses the donkey so that he might fulfill that prophecy. His life was marked with obedience to his father and also with a deep commitment to the prophecies that had been spoken about him earlier. I want to ask you, as you think about that, to remember that you know, we, he comes this time and utters humiliation. He comes in humanity as a man. But there's a day coming when it will be all glorification and it will be his deity that will shine forth. When he came then, it was simply to redeem. But when he comes again, it's going to be to reign. He came then to be killed. When he comes again, it will be to be king. He came then to to serve. But when he comes again, every knee will bow and it will be to be served. He came then to seek and to save, and when he comes again, and you will not like this, he comes to search and to slay. That's the reality of it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, if you will. It's easy to think of the tender Lord Jesus coming to seek and to save, of extending grace, but it's another thing to think of him coming not merely for reward, but for punishment as well. And so in Revelation chapter 19, John says, I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, not a donkey, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You know, I think of that that simple little animal and you know, there's a tremendous legend about the donkey, but even before that, there's a poem that I read years ago that has just really blessed me. I shared it with my staff uh, back in Boca Raton a few weeks ago, but see if you can follow it. When fishes flew, and forests walked, and figs grew upon thorns, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, but I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout about my ears and palms before beneath my feet. You know, I love the donkey. And in our farm in Illinois, we have miniature donkeys. I want to tell you something about donkeys. They're just wonderful animals. But did you know, and I know for a fact, because Rose and I have witnessed it, that when donkeys are born, they're born with a cross upon their back? Every donkey. Did you know that? Well, we've seen it. Our girls, Ruth and Naomi, those are our donkeys, were bred. And when they had their babies, just like mothers, there was a beautiful cross on the back. And I think of how that animal was chosen, part of a prophecy, that the king wasn't going to come in his humiliation on a great white stallion. He was going to come on a lowly beast of burden, a donkey. But for whatever reason, and however you look at the legend that I know to be true, God chose to scar Every monkey, every donkey with a cross upon its back. So I look at this and I see that his presentation right down to the donkey was all foretold. And then beyond that, their praise was foreseen. And again, that's in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, in the first part where God speaks to the prophet and says, shout joyfully, or rather he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so it's a real call to celebration You know, rejoice greatly. And this is what they're doing. And as you look at the praise, they're taking off their garments and they're putting in the road before them, somehow signifying that they were willing to lay their all at the feet of Jesus. It was a tremendous celebration. It was unrehearsed on their part. It was not planned by his, even though it was part of a divine plan that this was going to happen. Jesus did not orchestrate it, as some might say. And if you read the text, look with me now at verse 36, and as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road, and as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And then, of course, the Pharisees had their bit. But you can see that they were really excited about what was going to happen. Somehow they were looking ahead, and they saw this as the the future restoration of the kingdom to Israel. They're calling him king, even as it says in uh, Zechariah chapter 9. And somehow the celebration is prompted by the recitation of the Hillel, as many of them have just come up to Jerusalem reciting Psalms 113 through 118. And in Psalm 118, verse 26, it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're attributing all that to him. But do you notice that they're praising God for his miracles, not for his message? You know, there's a whole movement in the church today, and you're all familiar with it, that tends to promote the fact that God does these wonderful miracles, and God is just waiting there to bless you You know the prosperity gospel, it's out there. They praise for the miracles and the blessings. They very rarely praise or emphasize the message and the behavior that ought to mark the lives of those who follow this one that enters the city of Jerusalem that way. And so, there it is. Their praise was foreseen in Zechariah. And in John chapter 12, verse 13, he cries out, he says, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, they're crying out. Hosanna, save us. That's what that means. And save us now. And then it says, blessed be the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Get this, even the king of Israel. So they're looking to the restoration of the kingdom, and they see him. They miss who he really is at this point. They don't fully understand the message. And so they're praising him for the miracles, overlooking the message that he brought to them. They were celebrating They were using palm branches that are more characteristic of the Feast of of Tabernacles rather than the Feast of Passover. They didn't understand who he really was and why he had come. And so, you know, it says that as he came to the descent, you have to know that Jesus was in Bethany, and Bethany is behind me. He comes up a hill, and when he comes to the crest of the hill, you can see the holy city laid out before you. And so, as he, and he comes to that, it says, as he approached the descent, so he's ready to descend. The Mount of Olives. And he comes down, and before him, he looks out in the city. And if you've been there, you come down that hill, and you know that off to your left is one mountain. It's Mount Zion. And God says, I dwell there. He doesn't say, I did dwell there. He doesn't say, I will dwell there. He said, My presence right now in this day, I dwell in Mount Zion. And for those who go, it is never a tour. It ought to be a pilgrimage, and you experience the presence of God. So off to the left is Mount Zion, and then straight in front of that road that comes down from Bethany, you see Mount Moriah, where the temple was. Mount Moriah, where God told Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the son that you love, you take him up there, and you offer him in sacrifice to me. And off to the right is Mount Calvary. And the beautiful thing, is, you look at Moriah, I'm sorry, as you look at Zion, uh, Moriah, and Calvary, it's one and the same mountain. And this is what he sees. And so many times we think of Jesus, when he comes to earth, that he's gonna come immediately to uh, the Mount of Olives. And he's gonna go to that Eastern Gate. Not so. We read in Revelation 19 that he's gonna come, all robed in white, that his name will be on his thigh, the word of God, that he'll have the armies with him, and the saints that have gone before, and those who remain at his coming will be part of that great procession. But it does not initiate on the Mount of Olives. Let me ask you to turn to Isaiah 63. Begins with a question. Who is this who comes from Edom? That's present-day Jordan. With garments of glowing colors from Bozrah, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the the winepress alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, I trampled them with my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come." When Jesus comes, he's going to come to Bozrah with his enemies, and then he, with his armies, and then he will make his way to the holy city. And the battle will not be fought, as so many people think at Armageddon. And it will not be a long battle. It will be the shortest battle of all times. It is only at Armageddon where the kings of the east are going to gather. It just says that he dries up the river so they can gather there. But it doesn't say that there's a battle there. Yes, it's known as the field of blood, that more battles have been fought in Armageddon than any other place in the world. But there will be no battle fought at Armageddon because when when he comes to Jerusalem and he comes to the Mount of Olives, at that point it says he slays them with the breath of his mouth. It will be the shortest battle. It will be at that point, and it says that the blood will flow 200 miles. Actually, in today's mileage, about 185 miles. The blood will flow 200 miles up to the bridles that the horse wears. All that blood. You have to read Revelation and see what happens. That's when he comes again. But at this particular time, let's go back to Luke chapter 19. At this particular time, it's all praise. And they see him restoring the kingdom to Israel. It's not then, not then at all. And it's not then that he takes his kingship because we go on and we see that his pain was foreknown. Look at verse 41. And when Jesus approached the city, when Jesus, I'm sorry, when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. You know, the first time I read this, I thought about um, Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus. You know that beautiful verse that we quote so easily, the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. 35, Jesus wept. Well, the word that's used there is a very simple Greek word, Clio, and it just means to cry or to weep. But the word, I'm sorry, it's not Clio, it's uh, um, drakuo. And, uh, but the word that's used here is a, is a combination of Clio. It puts a preposition in front of it. And when that happens in Greek, the preposition intensifies it. So here, it's not simply that Jesus wept, but it says that he wept bitterly. He is really hurting over the city at that particular time. We read in Isaiah 53, that he was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is the man of sorrow. And he's weeping. You know, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says that he rejoices over us with singing. But he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept bitterly. He was broken inside because of what the city uh, did not... Accept him when he came you go back to John chapter 1 and and you have that beautiful in the beginning was the word The word was with God and the word was God He was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and apart from him Nothing has come into being which has come into being in him it was life and the life was the light of the world and that light shone in darkness and the darkness could not overpower it he came to his own and his own received him not And that's the pain, the utter rejection of his person and of his purpose. It was not like weeping in the tomb of Lazarus. As his eyes spanned the city, he saw the sin and the greater sin of rejecting his person and his purpose for coming. And at this particular time, despite the fact that they're having this great parade, Jesus was fully aware of the fact that he came to be crucified and not to be crowned. So I look at this passage And I see that his presentation was foretold, that their praise was foreseen, and that his pain was foreknown. Isaiah is telling us he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we lose sight of that. We are resurrection Christians, and we should be. But we don't linger enough at the hill called Calvary. And we need to do that. Despite what you think, Despite what you may think, Good Friday is the highest holy day. And that's the day your salvation was won. The empty tomb is just God's seal of approval. It's the affirmation. And it's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's scriptural confirmation because he said, I'll give you a sign. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so I will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And this is that fulfillment. So we look, if we go on, look at Verse 42. He wept saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The things which make for peace. I think of that beautiful uh, passage in Isaiah that we go through each Advent or Christmas, where it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. You know, one of the things that Rose and I try to do each morning is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And if you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you have to reckon that there will be no peace in Jerusalem and there will be no peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes again. And when he comes again, he will be the Prince of Peace and recognized as such. In Luke chapter 19, if you look back to verse 38 when it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, it says, peace in heaven. Yeah, there is peace in heaven. But there's not really peace on earth. And every time the world has supposedly given us peace, it has been very quickly, very quick to take it back. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the message at Bethlehem stands. It was peace on earth among men with whom he is well pleased. So despite the fact that this world, and in particular our nation, knows no peace at this time. We are divided by color. We are divided by financial status. We're divided by every imaginable way that you can divide mankind. There's no peace in this country. You try to tell me other, and as a professional soldier, I just don't believe you. But despite that, there is peace within those with whom he's well pleased. So everything about us can be shaken and in turmoil but you and I can have peace because we have embraced the Prince of Peace. So their peace was forfeited. You know, Jerusalem, it means the city of Shalom, the city of peace, but they rejected the Prince of Peace and they would not have peace at all. And then we want from there because of that, their punishment was forecasted. Look at verse 43. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground, your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You know, if you turn over to Luke 23 for a minute. Luke 23, verse 27. And there were following Jesus a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? And again, In the Gospel of uh, Matthew in chapter 24, at the beginning, the disciples are walking with Jesus. This is the last week in his earthly life and they're in the temple setting and the, the disciples are amazed at the temple. And they look and say, they say to Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I want you men to understand that a day is coming when not one stone of this temple will be left upon another. And less than 40 years later, in the year 70 AD, Jerusalem fell to Rome. Those of you who have been to the Holy City know if you go to the southern staircase, you will see the stones that fell from the temple. They're there unmoved. And some of the stones of that temple are the size of a boxcar. You say, how did they do it? How was that temple ever built? How would we, in today's world, how would you lift a stone that big? And you can see that these stones have been tumbled, not one left upon another, and it's only been in recent times that the archeologists have been able to say, these are the stones of the temple. Right here, these are the stones. And to this day, the Muslims say, there never was a temple there. And they also say, Mount Moriah, it wasn't Isaac, it was Ishmael. You know, and you have to look at all that, and you see that this is all part of the prophecy fulfilled. So two weeks ago, I was in Jerusalem, and throughout the, the time, the guide who did the historical part, I did the biblical narrative, but the, the guide who did the historical part referred several times to the fact that Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple and the downfall of Jerusalem. She predicted that. We stood at the southern wall, the southern staircase, and we talked about that, and I shared a message on, in that regard. And she could affirm the fact, and she said it over and over to our group, that Jesus predicted it, and in the year 70 AD it happened. But it never made it from here to here. And I go back to what Jesus said, that um, if you had known these in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but they've been hidden from your eyes. And so many people read these things, and they make no sense. And we can read them, and not get lost in wonder at all that God has done. Look at it, the presentation was foretold, their praise was foreseen, his pain was foreknown, their peace was forfeited, and their punishment was forecasted. He said that was gonna happen, and it happened. And then I have just a note that I've inserted that this place is now forever prominent. You know, if you go to, um, if you have the privilege of going on a pilgrimage, and I hope that you would want to make it a pilgrimage and not a tour. But as you, go, as you go there and you come down from the Mount of Olives, and it's a wonderful thing to see the pilgrims following the steps that Jesus had taken and come down that hill. And you know, you'll pass that little Garden of Gethsemane and on the other side is the Church of All Nations. And too many times you pass a little place that's called Dominus Flavit. It's a little church. It's called the Teardrop Church because the Italian artist Antonio Barluzzi fashioned it as a teardrop, because it was the place of tears. It's called the triumphal entry, but I want you to know, as I looked at it this week, I saw that it was really a tearful entry, because you can't leave out what happened. He wept there, and so this place becomes so significant, and he wept, and then he went down and crossed over the Jordan, and that was Sunday, at least what we would call Sunday. That night he came back, crossed the Jordan again, uh, not the Jordan, the uh, the Brook Kidron, he crossed the Brook Kidron, came back over and went back to Bethany. And Monday morning down, crossed Kidron, and he went into the temple, and he did this Monday and Tuesday. Those were heavy teaching days. You need to know what the last earthly life, or the last earthly week in the life of our Lord was like. Sunday was the triumphal entry, or the tearful entry. Monday and Tuesday, heavy teaching days. But on those days, he retired to the Garden of Gethsemane. And those of you who've been there know that beautiful little garden. You've walked there and you've touched the trees there. You've prayed at those spots. You know, our Lord walked through there, but each time he crossed the book Kidron. And then Wednesday, we have no idea what happened. Wednesday is just shrouded in mystery. We have no idea what happened. Thursday, he told the man, I want you to go into the city. You'll know where to go. You're gonna find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Easy to spot. In a city where only women carried the pitchers of water. That was a giveaway. They would know who it was. And that was going to be the place he'd have his meal with his men. And then he would go across the Kidron again. But listen, when he crossed the Kidron that night, it was flowing red with blood the blood of approximately 250,000 lambs that were offered as part of the Passover sacrifice. 250,000. Josephus says that at that particular Passover, there may have been 2.5 million Jews in the city and the environs of Jerusalem. And they brought their lambs up to the temple to be sacrificed. And the law said, one lamb for every 10 people. 10 into 2.5 uh, million. About 250,000 lambs. So the Kidron is flowing red with blood. When he crosses it, to go spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And then Judas comes to betray him with a kiss. Those of you who read Spurgeon, if you read the morning Spurgeon, it was about Jesus looks at him and says, Judas, you betray us the son of man with a kiss? And it was the kiss. And he comes down over the Kidron. And now the lamb is crossing the Kidron to be sacrificed and to be sacrificed for you and me. And he will come to Kidron again. And that's the scene that I tried to create for you as he comes from Bozrah and he comes to the holy city. And then with the word of his mouth, he slays the enemy and the blood flows deeply again. So it's an historical note. It's an eschatological note. And then the last, I just changed this a little bit when I was looking at it yesterday and the day before. I just want to give you three priorities that ought to be foremost in your mind and mine. Three priorities, and the first is this. I wanna beg you to rally to Israel. Let me tell you something. I find that, Christian, that there's a good deal of anti-Semitism among Christians. I am tired of hearing people talk, especially in Florida, about the New York Jews. And I say to them when I hear that, no, Jews have nothing to do with it. I said that's just New York. We New Yorkers are that way. Has nothing, to be with, has nothing to do with being Jewish. I'm a New York Italian, that's the way we are. You know, and you have to look at that and realize there is anti-Semitism. How many times has someone said, I want to tell you a joke. Now there's this rabbi, you know, and, and we hear all of this. And we have these stereotypes about the Jewish people. Wrong, especially that they're cheap. I want, to know, I want you to know they're not that way. They're among the most generous people in the world and you only have to go to Israel to see that to see what the Jews of the Holocaust did after they came to America and points elsewhere and how they did it. I want you to remember, as my mother used to say when she heard Christians talk about the Jews, my Jesus is a Jew. He wasn't Italian and he wasn't Norwegian or Swedish or German or Austrian, he was a Jew. And there's a Psalm, Psalm 122 verse six, and I want to, you know, it's a command. It says this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you are asking, you are inviting Christ to come now because there will be no peace in Jerusalem until Jesus comes again. Psalm 122 verse six, can you write that down? Can you make it a point? Every day, Rose and I, our prayer is this, God, we pray your protection on all of Israel, wherever she might be, because Israel is not a place, it's a people but pray your protection on all of Israel, wherever she might be. And God will you bring peace to Jerusalem. And we know that that peace will come only when he comes. And can you say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know if I said this last week, I may have said it in privacy to to some of the people I visited with. One of the exciting things about working with Jack Wilson was not only the fantastic mind that he had, And his grip, the grasp he had of scripture, especially Old Testament. But I remember one day walking with him and he said this, I go to bed every night, thoroughly disappointed that Jesus did not come. I don't know too many people say that. You know, we all want him to come, but I'm sort of like Pat Boone, hung up on that song. Just a little longer, Lord Jesus, give me just a little longer because Alan hasn't come back to the Lord yet. You know, and I don't know about Ann. And, and you take all these people that are on my heart. He's going to come when he comes. But I'm going to pray that he comes. And his will is going to be done in the lives of all my loved ones, whether he comes today or tomorrow. But wouldn't you love to see him come today? I've always said that I'd rather him come and meet him in the air than have to go through Farmer. I don't want to go through Farmer. <laughs> For those of you who aren't here, that's the funeral home here in town. All right, um, But anyway... Um, you know, the first thing is rally to the Jews. Rally to them. Do you know, one of the famed images of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, God refers to them as his bride. And what does Christ call his church? His bride. And in Revelation chapter 19, it says that Jesus is going to present before the Father his bride. And I think at that point, he's going to take the two people and make of them one. He's going to present the bride. And the bride will be the remnant of Israel and all the church. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 11 that at the end, all Israel will be saved. And I delight in that. So many of our patients are Jewish people and and so many of them are very beautiful people. And I long for them to know the Messiah. So the first is, I want you to rally to the Jewish people. The second is, I want you to consider repentance as a day-to-day thing in the life of the believer. Yes, I repented on March 30th, 1968 and became a believer. But even before I came here today, I had to pray about my sinful life and ask God to forgive me so that I might be a faithful messenger, a pure messenger for him today. Repentance is an everyday thing. The old rabbi was talking to his people and, he, and, and they said at the end of the lesson, they said, well, rabbi, tell us, what one message would you leave with us as the most important? And he said this, repent the day before you die. Repent the day before you die. And they said, Rabbi, we don't know when that is. He said, then repent today. There's something to that. Repent today. It's not a one-time thing, and it's not a work. It's something when the Spirit of God comes on us and convicts us of our sinfulness, especially in light of the fact that we know the truth. We know Christ. He touched us. He transformed our lives. He saved us. He provides for us. He protects us. He is altogether lovely. Fairest Lord Jesus. That's who he is. He's the beloved. I am his and he is mine. That song last week, The Everlasting Love, that says, I am his and he is mine. So special. So repentance. So very important. And the third is Readiness. Because you see, he is coming again. That's the point of the triumphal entry, or the triumphal entry. It's just, it reminds us that he is yet to come, not to be crucified as them, but to be crowned, not to be killed, but to be king. And that day is coming. So the third is readiness. And I'm mindful of the story that Chuck Swindoll once told. He wrote it up in southern dialect and sent it to me. It was precious, I keep it in my files. It's about this old black lady in a southern Mississippi town And everybody knows she just loved the Lord Jesus, you know? She really loves Jesus. And she's waiting for Jesus to come. And one day she's going to a little country store. And a couple of black fellas, sort of lewd and crude kind of guys, they're out to give her a hard time. They say, hey, Mrs. Jones, I hear you love Jesus. And she said, I love Jesus, boys, you know that. And they said, well, we hear Jesus is coming. And she said, I know Jesus is coming. they said, well, you better get ready. You get ready, Mrs. Jones. She said, "I don't has to get ready. I keeps ready." Are you ready?" You know, my mother gave me what I always called a holy card. It was from her mother, and it said this: "Are you saying the things you want to be saying when Jesus comes? Are you with the people you want to be with when Jesus comes? And are you doing the things you ought to be doing? when Jesus comes. I think those are three priorities we need to keep foremost in our mind. To rally the Jews, to repent daily, to really allow the Spirit of God to search our mind and our heart and our soul. And I think we need to say, am I really ready? If he came now, am I, in the words of Bob Cook, am I prayed up and forgiven? Are you prayed up and forgiven today? You know, we're here and we're all dressed in this church and we're evangelicals, whatever that means today. You know, but tell me about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember being with Doug one day, and young Dougie, and we were talking about... You may have been there, Tommy, I'm not sure. We were talking about the flame level of the zeal. You know, where was our flame, you know? And, and the different young men that were there gave a a number, and then I asked, and what about the level of your parents? And that number was so much higher. You know, what's happening to us? You know, right now, where do we stand before God? Because the King is coming. Do you believe that? It used to be when you say that, people would say amen. I don't hear that anymore. I don't see the excitement. I don't see the brokenheartedness that Jack Wilson knew. But the king is coming. Who's the king? The old black man said, well the Bible tells me my king is a seven way king. He's king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness, that's a spiritual king. He's the king of the ages, that's an eternal king. He's the king of heaven and the king of glory, that's a celestial king. He's the king of kings, And Lord of Lords, that's a universal king. But most importantly, he's my king, a personal king. And the black man said, do you know him? He went on to say, David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Well, it also tells me that my king is a sovereign king. No means or measures can define his limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his all-sufficient supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings on those he loved. He is enduringly strong, he's entirely sincere, and he is internally steadfast. He is immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, and he is impartially merciful. And the black man said, I just gotta know. Do you know him? He said, well he's the greatest phenomenon that's ever crossed the horizon of our world. God's own dear son, savior of sinners, the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in the solitude of his own self. He is unique, he's unparalleled, he's unprecedented. He is the loftiest letter in literature, the highest personality in all of philosophy. He is the supreme problem of higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the indispensable necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the ages. You could say he's the superlative of every good thing you and I might want to say about him. But most importantly, he's the only one qualified to be my all-sufficient savior. And we're in that parade today And we're waving the prongs. But I want to know, do you know him? The old preacher said, he supplies strength to the weak. He's available for the tormented and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guides and he guards. And I forgot the rest for a minute. the tormented, and he heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He discharges debtors. He forgives sinners. He blessed the children. He served the unfortunate. He had regard for the aged. He rewarded the diligent. And he endowed the meager. And he said, I still need to know. Do you know him? Well, he is the key to knowledge. The wellspring of wisdom. He's the the pathway to peace and the doorway to deliverance. He's the highway to holiness, the road to righteousness and the gateway to glory. Do you know him? He said his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enduring. His, his rage is righteous. His yoke is easy. His burden is ever light. And he said, I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's just indescribable. He said, good God almighty, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. And he's irresistible. You can't get him out of your head. You just have to have him in your heart. You can't outlive him. You can't really live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. They soon learned that they couldn't stop him. Pilate found no fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. And the black man said, And that's my king. And his is the kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? Well, that's forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever's, then good God Almighty. Amen, and amen, and amen. That's the king, and today's the procession. And You wave your palms. We take our jackets off and throw them right here in the church where it's nice and convenient. But out in that dirty, muddy world where his name is abused and his person is ridiculed, do we still wave our branches? And do we still take our coats off and put them before him? The real question is, is he your king today? Let's pray together. Spirit of God, no one of us knows how many more times we'll have the opportunity to make this particular journey. And so we start today with the journey to Jerusalem. It is triumphal at the same time it's tearful. And it's tearful at the same time it speaks of a greater triumph yet to come. But Spirit of God, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would want to make this journey faithfully. I pray that even as we leave this place, we would cry out Hosanna Save us now. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us peace in our heart. I pray, Spirit of God, that you'd help us to follow his steps in the Gospels this week. That on Thursday, we might remember how he broke bread and shared the cup and said that the bread spoke of his body and the cup of his blood, broken and spilled out simply because he loved us. I pray, Father, you'd help us to be in the garden and think on how many times we betrayed him with a kiss. Help us to be there on Friday, to set time aside, to reflect on his death, knowing all along that he lives, that he lives forever and he chooses to live within us. But God, give us the gift of tears. I pray even now that your spirit would empower Pastor Sean and that Friday's message would be second to none for him. God, please let that be. And then let us wait with great anticipation as we think of the empty tomb on resurrection morning. Help us to reflect on the fact that he's coming again and it really could be today. Lord God, help us to be ready and speak to us in quiet ways.